Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Supreme Court and public sector unions. So Richard, we have oral arguments coming up before the Supreme Court in this big case, uh, Friedrichs v. California Teachers Association, dealing with the powers of public sector unions, a couple of powers in particular. The first big issue here, we're probably going to have to start for our audience with just defining some terms. Uh, one of them that's at issue in this case, something called the agency shop. So explain for our audience that concept and its legal history. Well, what happens is to understand why you even worry about agency shops, you have to understand that the fundamental premise of the Labor Relations Act is that a majority of workers in any particular area can bind the minority because the union that is selected by them is in fact the exclusive bargaining agent for all people. And so this means instead of having the unanimous consent that is found with standard contracts, you have a serious governance problem similar to that when you have a nation which is 50 percent Democrat and 40 percent Republican or the worse. Now, the majority cannot just simply run roughshod over the minority um, because it has to protect them. It has a fiduciary duty, so-called, of fair representation. Uh, and so the question then comes in exactly what can it do with respect to workers who oppose them? And the traditional view about this has been the union can in fact speak for these workers um, with respect to collective bargaining, but it cannot speak for these workers with respect to its political activities. And then the compromise goes one step further and it says that if a worker wants to opt out of the political contributions, um, he can do so, uh, but then he has to leave the union and typically is required to pay an agency fee. That's where the term agency shop comes in, equal to the dues that the new union members would have to pay uh, for the collective bargaining stuff. And in the Friedrichs case, there are a large number of people who say this is not good enough. Um, when we want out, we want out from top to bottom. And so we don't want to have to pay anything to a union whose entire raison d'etre is absolutely antithetical to whatever we believe. There is a case called a boot against the Detroit Board of Education in 1977, I believe it was, which essentially upheld this elaborate claptrap, difficult kind of distinction between bargaining and political activities. But in the last five or so years, it's been clear that rest of members of the Supreme Court, led by Justice Samuel Alito, don't think the distinction is worth making. And so the question in this particular case is can the workers who want to opt out not only escape the dues for the political part, but they can, can they escape all duels whatsoever? And if they can do that, the opting out rate will increase. And there's no question if you look at what happened, for example, when collective bargaining rules were changed in Wisconsin, union membership will plummet. So this is a mortal threat to the public unions. And of course, in my view, that means it's all to the good for the public at large. And this question of the agency shop turns largely on how people interpret the free rider problem here. Basically, the, the argument for people in favor of this is, look, these people are going to benefit from the activities of the union regardless. They should – sure, they don't have to pay for the political arm of it, but they should have to pay for something because they're <laughs> benefiting from this. Richard, what's wrong with that argument? 
Well, the answer is it's partially true. What, what the difficulty you get in this particular case is that the model that people use to explain that there are free riders is, is to concentrate on the wage component of the entire package. And what the union says is we're a monopolist, although they don't use that term. What they do is they prefer to talk about it as concerted action and get rid of the antitrust implications that work against them. And when we negotiate higher wages, you get the benefit of those wages and you cannot expect other workers to pay in to get those higher wages and have a net figure minus their cost where you have no minus cost whatsoever. And so to that extent, the argument looks to be true. But it's complicated because it turns out uh, that unions negotiate not only wages but hundreds of other terms and conditions. And in these particular situations, the conflict between workers can be absolutely critical uh, so that the outliers may in fact be worse off, notwithstanding the wage increase, if other things cut against them. So to give you but one simple example, um, if you have a group of very strong teachers and a group of very weak teachers, what the strong teachers want is they want rules that allow for easy dismissal of weak teachers and they want merit raises. And their attitude is, I'm going to be able to meet the risk requirements and I'll move up very smartly. The majority of the members of the teachers unions usually are are risk averse. They want strong protections on tenure and they don't want merit raises. They want everybody to be kept at the medium. Well, you just imagine what's going on. The teachers who are strong would say the union doesn't represent me because it's keeping down my wages by changing the scale and it's forcing me to have to associate with a group of teachers who are very weak and that completely degrades my educational experience and my collegial experience with my fellow workers. So I don't think I'm better off by virtue of having a union and I would say you know, quite emphatically in my own case, the thought of being on a university faculty that was unionized is an absolute anathema to me because I could see exactly those kinds of situations taking over. And this goes on all the time. To give you another example, uh, some of these workers or teachers or public union members are likely to retire fairly soon. Others are very young. Uh, The ones who are in now would like a formula which ties pensions to salary in the last three or four years of work and they'll get a fortune. Uh, Younger people will never get that kind of deal because these systems will go belly up or will be talking down. And so what you have is a real conflict of interest on the timeline. And the duty of fair representation is just not sufficient, uh, if you want I could explain why, um, uh, to basically deal with these acute conflicts. And the free rider argument is wrong to the extent that the conflicts are as important as the common interests. Can you explain that phrase that you used there for a moment, duty of fair representation? What does that mean? What's the obligation there? Well, go back to 1943, and there's a famous case called J.I. Case, and in it, Justice Jackson says the following. He says that the union is so important uh, that what happens is that if there are contracts that were negotiated to individual workers that were favorable, collective bargaining allows you to wipe those guys out and forces them to take the union situation. And so it really is essentially looking as though the collective 
that will dominate against the individual worker. The next year comes along and there's a case called Steele against the Louisville and Nashville Railroad. And this involves the forced merger of two unions under the Railway Labor Act passed in 1926. And before that, there were two segregated unions, one all white and one all black. Not so surprising if the year is 1926. And the black union members did about as well as the white union members. What happened is with the Railway Labor Act, there was now an exclusive single union for all workers on the line. And so what happened is it was a white controlled union. There were more white workers than black unions, workers. And the white workers went to 21 railroads and said, we want you to demote all black workers so they can no longer serve as firemen but have to take lower paid jobs. And the firms kind of went along with all of this. Uh, so there's all bloody hell now breaks loose. And the black workers rightly go to the United States Supreme Court and says, look, uh, they're supposed to represent us as long as these other guys. You look at the Railway Labor Act, which governs railroads, and then the National Labor Relations Act that governs more industrial firms like manufacturers. There's not a word about this duty of fair representation. But they go to general equitable principles and say, if you've got the power, you cannot discriminate on the grounds of race. And so what they do is they say, you are under a fiduciary duty to represent your black workers as well as your white workers. This turns out to be very weak protection, even in the case of admitted violations, because uh, 10 years later, we or 12 years later, there's a case at the Supreme Court with the same dispute, and they're still fighting over exactly what that fiduciary duty requires. Essentially, it's extremely difficult to enforce, even in cases of blatant violations like there was in Steele. Well, if it turns out to be a traditional economic conflict where you have specialists in craft industries against general workers and so forth, the duty of fair representation is absolutely hopeless in trying to resolve the cam the conflict of interest. And the same thing exists if you think about science teachers commanding a premium over English teachers or gym teachers or whatever it is. Uh, so the so-called remedy, the duty of fair representation uh, to the extraordinary power that is given to the union will not essentially stop the potential for serious conflicts of interest. And so the critique that's made of the basic system that these guys want out because they're actually made worse off by union representation, not better. They're not free riders. They're forced riders. They're carrying the burden of the union on the backs of their shoulders becomes more credible. And if you realize that the free rider argument is highly dubious, then the First Amendment argument, which says, look, I don't have to support speech to which I'm opposed, becomes much more credible. And one can see a perfectly sensible and principled way when you look hard at the problem to see what it was that they missed in the Abood case some 40 years ago and overrule the decision today. This is meant to be a principled argument. It's not meant to be an argument which is tied to any peculiarities of changed circumstances and so forth. But it becomes more timely now because we all know that when collective bargaining takes place, not only do you have the internal conflicts, but you have the unsustainable public union pensions and you have to be able to deal with both these problems. And so it's not as though unions, when they work in a unified fashion to serve the public good, they're very dangerous. And then when there's a conflict of interest, they're dangerous as well. So whether or not there's harmony or discord within the union structure, unions are always antithetical to the public welfare, especially in the public sector, where new entry by rival firms cannot undermine their power. One of the other issues at work here, uh, seemingly a technical one at first glance, 
is whether workers paying these dues uh, can opt out. That's that's the situation right now is that you are – you're brought in by default and then you have to opt out. The question here is whether you can reverse it so that you are not by default made to pay and you'd have to opt in. Does that go beyond the technical, Richard? Are there, are there implications for a change there? Well, it's technical, but it's vital. Essentially, what happens is inertia is a very powerful force in these types of circumstances. And not only that, the opt-out stuff is not simply check a box and you're gone. There was a nice piece in the Wall Street Journal the other day which noted that if you wish to opt out from the, from the financial side, you've got to withdraw from the union altogether so you don't have a voice on any of the other stuff. Um, and essentially, if you now put the burden on the union, they have to recruit people year end after year and just think how difficult it is to recruit people to re-sign up for their Obamacare um, situation under the individual mandate. Each year you have to go back to them. So the guess that everybody has is that this could lead to an erosion of 30, 40, 50 or even 60 percent of union memberships just by changing the burden of proof. Um, and so there is a real argument there that what the Supreme Court may do is say that the grand argument doesn't work and then say but we now see all the problems that we have with the so-called free rider argument, we'll try to protect these workers some by taking this intermediate solution. So essentially, the union has a huge defeat, public unions, if the more broad principle is accepted, but it's a very serious loss to them, even if the narrower principle turns out to be accepted under these circumstances. There's a long literature about how important default options are in all sorts of settings. And in this case, it turns out that the defaults are sticky in the sense that in order to change them, you have to do more than click on a box. You have to suffer from serious collateral consequences. So uh, this is a situation in which the unions have to sweep the board. It's not clear that they will be able to do this. Um, there's very clear evidence that the four liberals are already committed to the Abood situation situation and will not allow for its erosion. And so like in so many other cases, a lot of this depends upon what Justices Kennedy um, and Justice Roberts think and whether or not stare decisis, that is the old law has to hold, will be there. And many people in the liberal press are already pushing very hard on Justice Roberts saying he was a great man to respect precedent and he has to do it in this particular case. Um, I don't know exactly what his mental processes are, but it's certainly clear that he does have that strand in his thought. And it's also equally clear that people like myself who tend to go back to first principles rate the precedent less important than the structural arguments and the ultimate merits of the individual case. The final question that I'll put to you is on that issue of first principles. Imagine for a moment, Richard, that the court rules as far as you think is plausible in the direction mm. against the unions. What's the gulf between that and how far Richard Epstein would go? Well, Richard Epstein has long believed that the entire structure of American labor law is flatly unconstitutional in both the public and the private sector. Uh, to me, the fundamental and simple point is that if you have competitive labor markets, they are going to work at the highest possible level of efficiency. And indeed, in some cases, they will actually generate unionized results. Most commonly, the company union is something which in fact allows work to get together in order to explain what will help improve the performance within the business without giving you the kind of dangerous monopoly power when you have international unions that represent all competitive firms at once. And so I would strike down the National Labor Relations Act 
in terms of the way in which it deals with private unions. Public unions, as I said, are even more powerful because the company union option doesn't work. There is no way a new school district can come in to compete with the established school districts or a new prison system can upset the local prison system. So these unions have huge powers. They will not be dissuaded or pushed out because of their economic inefficiency and they can lobby like hell against the various legislators to make sure that they don't change the rules. And, you know, the threat that somebody has is, well, you vote against us on this particular bill, we will put a million dollars in your district to get you unseated, is a very credible threat. And unless all the legislators get together, each of them is going to buckle up individually against the union. So you have a political power that backs up a corrupt economic structure. I regard this as essentially intolerable as the way in which to run any country or any industry. And so I would strike it all down. And in the public side, you are a public trustee when you represent the government and public trustees cannot give public funds to monopoly unions that they have to spend for the benefit of the public as a whole. So the duty of fair representation as embodied in the public trust doctrine means that the whole structure of public unionization should be struck down. Um, I agree with Calvin Coolidge on that particular point and I'm completely unrepentant and as you start watching the way in which these unions have led to a degradation of services in every area in which they control, it seems to me that stare decisis is a very weak objection against a system which is going slowly to perdition and ruin because union power backed by political power is much too strong relative to the alternatives that we have and so it should be gotten rid of. So I'm actually much more emphatic. I don't think this is just a First Amendment issue. I think it's a matter of economic liberties as well. Never at a loss for candor. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.